I hope you realize this morning that there are some things, or one thing for sure, that only God can do. And that one such thing is to change a heart. Only God can effect change in us through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Word. And there is perhaps, this text today is perhaps one of the clearest examples of the call that brings us to Christ and the power of the gospel to change a life. Now, I believe the Bible teaches that there are at least two calls that go out according to the gospel. One is the call to come to Jesus. And that is a universal, general call of God to all people to surrender to the gospel. However, I believe there's also a different call in the Bible. And that is not the call to come to Christ, but the actual call that brings you to Christ. I want you to think about that as we go through this passage of Scripture together. Now remember, last week we saw that the gospel was moving to the ends of the earth. Uh, That's the theme, one of the themes of Acts is the fact that it's the conquest of the kingdom. The gospel of Jesus Christ is becoming universal in application and experience to the ends of the earth. That's what we see in the book of Acts. And last week, Paul... And his missionary band, they make their plans, but God directs their paths, right? They end up, the Holy Spirit says, no, don't go to Asia. This is where I want you to go. And the Bible says that there's a man beckoning them to come to Macedonia. And of course, that's where we pick up today in the Word of God, chapter 16, beginning in verse 11. This week, I decided I was tired of looking down and not being able to see the Scripture. So I went and bought a larger font, Bible, ESV. I'm doing all I can to keep from wearing anything up here when I preach to you. So I can see a little better today uh, the scripture, beginning in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi. And Paul thinks it's necessary, or Luke does, thinks it's necessary to give you a little more detail about this particular city, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who came, who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. Now, the fact of the matter is, she would have crossed over, and she would have been from Asia. Interesting. Uh, A seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart. Check this out. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. One thing that sticks in my mind as I read that was Paul's words to the Philippian church. Remember that? He that has begun a good work will be faithful. Now, we apply that to ourselves individually, which is okay. But the primary meaning is God established a church in in Philippi. Bang, right there. 
with the conversion of Lydia. And you're going to see three incredible conversions. Lydia, a slave girl, which is extremely dramatic and, and incredible transformation. And then you're going to see the conversion of the Philippian jailer. So, man, Acts 16 is just great, right? It's just a wonderful text of Scripture. And we're going to learn about these conversion experiences and how the Lord God is mighty to save. But notice the route, and Luke begins to be specific with us. As a matter of fact, when this journey is over, Paul is going to leave Luke in Philippi. Luke has an incredible affinity for Philippi. Maybe it's because there was a well-known medical uh, facility there, educational-wise, where people could have been trained. And you know Luke was a physician. But he, has a, uh, he speaks of Philippi and tells us about it. So Samothrace would have been a mountainous island, direct route between Troas and Neapolis. And then the missionary band, who do we have? Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. Uh, I think they must have had the wind at their back as they sailed. Why? Because they made it 150 miles in two days. That's impressive. And from Neapolis, the mission team would have walked along the famous Via Ignatia, and they would have walked about 10 miles across this until they reached Philippi. Luke tells us that it was a Roman colony, a leading city of that district. It would have had real, real, real heavy Roman influence in it. And as a matter of fact, a lot of military veterans would have settled there. Just like the Philippian jailer, more than likely was a, a Roman soldier who had retired. Most prison guards were Roman soldiers who had retired to Philippi. We'll, we'll deal with that in a few weeks. But the fact is, uh, you will remember that it was named after, after Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the... Okay, now you're with me, right? It was named after him, uh, after Philip, and it was under Roman domination starting in 168 B.C., was later enlarged in 46, 42 B.C. when Antony and Octavian defeated Brutus and Cassius. Thanks for the history lesson, right? Uh, it was often called a little Rome, which is very interesting. So the missionary band arrives in Philippi, and guess what? You don't have a synagogue in Philippi. And what was the normal, Paul's normal missionary call? In his mind, his pattern was to first go to the synagogues and to preach the Old Testament to those Jewish people who needed to know about Christ, who needed to see the fulfillment. Couldn't do that in Philippi. Why? There was no synagogue. Well, they knew and were taught as Jews, if, there, if there's no synagogue, go out somewhere under the sky or on a riverbank, preferably, and have a place of prayer. So that's exactly what this missionary band is doing. Paul is aware of those customs. Why? Because he was a Jew. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And so they go down to the riverside, and they find this prayer meeting going on. And it's interesting to remember that it was a man beckoning them to come to Macedonia, but the first people to hear the gospel were all women. That's interesting, isn't it? But that's what's going on. The, the Word of God is preached. What would they have been doing at this point? Well, the, the Shema out of Deuteronomy 6 would have been read. Behold, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They would have read that. They would have read the prophets. They would have discussed the law. And, of course, we know what's going on. This is a divine appointment. They're discussing the Holy Scriptures, and Paul shows up. I mean, I mean that's a preacher's dream, right? Uh, they're lost people. Uh, they're worshipers of God. And what would that mean? Well, again, 
Lydia was from the province of Thyatira, and actually she may have gotten her name because it was named in ancient days Lydia. So the passage says that she's a worshiper of God, uh, a Gentile who saw the truth, saw truth in Judaism, and she wanted that particular truth. She had come under the influence of these Jewish women. So the phrase worshiper of God would at least mean in New Testament terminology that this lady was familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. She was a worshiper. Wasn't saved, but she was seeking truth. She would have been familiar with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And notice in our passage, the Bible says she was listening. Paul began to preach Christ as he always did. He began to preach Jesus as the fulfillment of all the scriptures. And the Bible says that God opened her heart to pay attention to what was said. She heard the call to come to Christ, but she also was a recipient of the call that brings someone to Christ. Now, of course, uh, people can resist the general call of the gospel. Many, if not all, people who hear the gospel reject it. Y'all do know that, right? Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and few in there find it. So we know that's the case. If you have been faithful to share Christ with others, uh, I can guarantee you that fewer come to Christ than do. Right? So we know that. Far more have rejected the gospel than ever received it. When we see the words, God opened her heart, we must honestly acknowledge that most resist the call to come to Christ. This has been the pattern in the book of Acts, has it not? We've been studying this a long time. You better say, yes, preacher. It has been the pattern. Uh, the marvelous good news of Christ is received by some. But the majority of the people who hear it reject it. We see it firsthand. Uh, I've got a new, uh, new Bible up here, so it doesn't turn. It's not trained as well as my other ones. So you've got to be a little more patient. I have flipped around into a good bit. But notice how this happens. Chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed. You know, the gospel can be annoying, can it not? It annoyed them because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and, and uh, persecuted them for preaching the gospel. So throughout Acts, you have this give and take. You have some that receive and you have the majority that reject. You have people who are disturbed when they hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ concerning a crucified and resurrected Savior. Yet again, in the middle of that context of people rejecting, there are people God is calling and bringing to salvation. Again, in chapter 4, verse 18, listen to the word. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. I think there are a lot on the, uh, in the media of the U.S. that would tell us that, right? Man, how dare you speak or teach in the name of Jesus? But you know, remember Peter and John? Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, or rather, rather than to God, you must judge. But we must speak, because we must obey the Lord. Uh, chapter 5, verse 7. Verse 27, I'm sorry. Y'all getting this? And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. What blood? Well, you remember, Peter doesn't cut any corners when he's preaching, and he tells them that 
The blood of Christ is upon their hands. They crucified the Son of God. In chapter 7, verse 51, um, by the way, I don't, I'm not sure that uh, Stephen went to the seminaries we went to, but most of us are told not to do an invitation in this manner. Listen how Stephen gives his invitation in chapter 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, <laughs> uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, and your fathers did it so. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not prosecute? Uh, uh, persecute, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. He didn't learn that in seminary, right? What an invitation. We're supposed to be careful, right? In the invitation not to, to make absolutely sure we don't offend anybody with the fact that they're sinners. Stephen didn't hear that memo, did he? Told him straightforward their condition before the Lord. Chapter 13, verse 46. Are you getting the fact that the gospel is rejected by most? We have in 13, chapter, verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Judge themselves unworthy of eternal life by rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we see the gospel being preached from city to city. Jesus is proclaimed as the only way of salvation. And they are the guys that are preaching are opposed, resisted, often jailed. And normally it causes a riot because the gospel has been preached. Mob violence. We know that when John the Baptist came on the scene, he preached a, uh, a baptism of repentance. Do you all remember that? And in Luke chapter 7, I won't read that, verses 24 through 30, same Jewish authorities, totally against that. However, those who were pricked to the heart and knew they needed to repent in reference to the coming of Jesus Christ, they actually repented and were baptized. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, you can turn there if you'd like to, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 we began to think about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and why so many people reject it. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, the gospel is foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So, to those who believe the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. To those who reject it is foolishness. Ah, crucified and cursed Messiah makes no sense to people who are unbelievers. I want to remind you there are two, two kinds of people according to 1 Corinthians. Those who believe and are being saved and those who do not believe and are perishing. There's only two kinds of people in the world. Why do so many reject Christ and refuse the call? Well, in 1 Corinthians, the cross is foolishness to those, and it's a stumbling block to those who do not believe. That's still true today. When they hear about the cross, it's nothing to them but an aroma of death. Paul's going to say that. To those who are being saved, the cross is the aroma to, of life unto life. But to those who are perishing, it is the aroma of death unto death. So why do so many, when they hear about the cross, why are they rejecting it? Let me give you a couple things to think about. Would you not agree that pride is one of the major reasons? 
that people reject the preaching of the cross in order to come to Jesus and to have life and forgiveness of sins, it requires you to humble yourself as a sinner. Uh, you come to the Lord with empty hands and you receive that which is offered in the gospel as a free gift. That cuts across the grain of the default mechanism in the human heart that we have to do something to get something. We want to have that pride that we've actually done something. Pride will keep you away from the cross. As the rulers would say in Jerusalem during that time Jesus, that they preached, we will not have this man rule over us. It's an issue of pride. What about the fact that some just want to remain willfully ignorant of the gospel? You hear it, and perhaps you've heard it preached in this church time after time and time again, and you're just indifferent to it. You've heard that sermon, right? It's the same old sermon the preacher preaches every week. I've heard that sermon. I've heard it. I want to remind you that Thomas Watson said, Every sermon you hear takes you one step closer to heaven or one step closer to hell. So in that regard, you have not heard every sermon. I promise you, you haven't. Once you've heard one, you've, heard, you've not heard them all. Some people are just lazy. You hear the truth and you think, well, I mean, there's probably some truth there, but you're just too lazy to pursue Christ. You have other things to do. Uh, you're a spiritual sluggard when it comes to spiritual things and you're just not interested. Others have a careless security. Is this not true in the great U.S. of A? Everything's fine in the U.S., Correct. I'm just loving and enjoying life. It reminds me of Luke chapter 12. Remember that story? He, you got a guy who's got barns and more barns and more barns. And he fills all of those barns so they're extremely, uh, completely full. And his thought is, well, life is good because I've got barns and they're all filled. Right? He did not know, according to Christ, that his very soul would be required of him that night. We have so much affluence in our country, so much materialism. So many men and women have this careless security in things, and they're not concerned at all about their soul or eternity. Just like Jesus said of the rich man with all the barns, one of these days, your soul will be required of you. You can count on it. Others reject the gospel because they simply do not see the need. Why go to the doctor if you're not sick? Why call 911 if there's not an emergency? But there really is an emergency. You're just not aware of it. If this religious stuff can help some, that's fine. Go ahead and go to church. Uh, if you want Jesus to be your crutch, go ahead and do it. You can have him. But that's not something I desire. And, and folks, if you don't see the need for Christ, you will surely never see the beauty and glory of Jesus. Will you? Thomas Manton said, a carnal heart cannot prize spiritual mercies. It's impossible for us to understand the mercy of Christ apart from being saved. Well, there's others who live with presumptuous conceit. What does that mean? Well, I was baptized as a kid, preacher. I took care of this a long time ago. I jumped through all the hoops at the local Baptist church. I signed a card. I went up during one of those crusades they had at the church back 50 years ago. doesn't really matter how I live now. But I'm fine, because I made a decision years and years ago. Isn't it interesting how that we'll hold on to some kind of spiritual impression that, was, that we had 50 years ago, but since that time we haven't lived for Christ at all, but yet we think we're secure? Are y'all getting this? I wonder how that's the case. Instead of turning to Christ, some just make resolutions to do better. That's called do better religion, right? I'm just going to try a little harder. I've got news for you. 
I can tell you now, you better have a righteousness. That is a whole lot better than what you have now if you're going to stand before a holy God. If you think that what you do is going to get you to heaven, I've got news for you. That righteousness better be a whole lot better than what you think you have. Because the Bible says in the book of Isaiah that your goodness is as a filthy rags before a holy God. That's why you need the righteousness of Jesus. Without it, you cannot go to heaven. So, young people resist so often because they're fearful. If I follow Christ, my parents, like my parents tell me to, then I won't have any fun in this world. Mom and Dad, you're just killjoys. And I've got my life in front of me, and I'm a teenager, and people think I'm stupid and weird. And I just got all this future in front of me, and I don't want to miss out all on the fun. Look, Dad, I'm in the prime of my life. Right? I want to sow my seeds of fun. I don't know what fun is to you guys out there, but I think that uh, fooling around and running around and doing a little of this and a little of that, for people, one of these days you're going to have a rude awakening. When you plant all the seeds of destruction that will later bear fruit when you get older in your life. And that fruit won't be good. Do you know, there's a joy that comes from following Jesus that surpasses all the dope and sex this world has to offer. Oh, I ought to hear more amens than that. That was pitiful, right? I don't think you're sure. You should be sure that following Jesus far supersedes all the dope the world can offer and all the sex this world can offer. For these and countless other reasons, people reject the gospel. But there are those who believe. So many of us on that day heard God opened our heart to hear. Oh, folks, you need to be thankful that you had ears to hear. You didn't get those ears on your own. You didn't get the hearing on your own. The text is clear. God opened her heart to hear the word. Don't miss that. Now look, at the age of nine, Jesus Christ opened my heart, gave me the ability to hear, and I haven't always been perfect or morally upright, but I'm telling you, I've never been ashamed of following Jesus. Never thought of anything different than to keep following the Lord Jesus Christ. And I guess that we could all have this testimony. I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaking, forsaken or his children begging for bread. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He is good, isn't he? Why do some come to Christ? Well, in Acts 2.37, it's through the power of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel that arrests the attention of people and brings them gloriously into the kingdom of God. Jesus said this of the Father. No one comes to me except the Father and the Spirit draw him. So we see the power and persuasiveness of the Holy Spirit to convict our hearts. Acts 13. Listen to this one passage. Chapter 13, beginning in verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you thrust aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us to do so. Let's make sure I'm right. 13, 46 through 48. Yes, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began to rejoice and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed, that happened before time, believed. 
There's the work of the Holy Spirit of God to open a heart to hear. Those who had the appointment, imperfect tense, in the past, believed on that particular day. Folks, that's the work of the Holy Spirit of God. That's not the, it's not the work of man. John 6. Salvation doesn't come by the will of man. You can't get saved anytime you think you want to get saved. You can't. You get saved when God calls you. Right? It's not by the will of man. It's by the will of God. So the general call of the gospel. What an awesome thing to know that the gospel goes out to the ends of the earth and people can hear. But there's also this call that brings individuals to Christ. And I'm telling you, no one ever comes to Christ wherein God doesn't first open that heart to hear the gospel. Y'all see that on the pages of Scripture? Are you beginning to understand? I love what Spurgeon said. You know, Charles Spurgeon could say things like only Spurgeon could, right? Here's what he says. The general call of the gospel is like sheet lightning that we see sometimes on a summer's evening. You ever seen sheet lightning? Don't look, don't look at me like that. Yes, you have. You've seen sheet lightning in the, in the sky. It's beautiful and it's grand, but whoever heard of someone being struck by sheet lightning? Spurgeon goes on to say, The special call of salvation is the forked flash from heaven, and it strikes somewhere. It's the difference between sheet lightning and being struck by lightning. That's the difference between the general call that goes out to the world and the effectual call of God that when you are appointed before the foundation of the world, and bang, God strikes your heart. Got your attention, didn't I? And when He strikes your heart, brothers and sisters, you're going to listen. Because the God of eternity has spoken to your heart, right? So as Paul preached on the riverside, and he proclaimed the sheet lightning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in God's good pleasure, he sent a lightning bolt that opened Lydia's heart. Now folks, I don't care who you are, that's good theology. That's how the Bible explains the awesome free, sovereign grace of God to save sinners. He opens the heart of those. Now, in conclusion, y'all believe that? It is. It really is. What, what does the opening of the heart for salvation entail? What does it entail if God opens the heart? This is good. And I hope you get good theology of soteriology tonight, today. Soteriology is a doctrine of salvation. I hope you come away from here knowing these eight things. They're going to be real fast. But here's the deal. One old preacher said, when it comes to some details, some things are better felt than telt. All right? But I'm going to try to tell you what it looks like when God opens your heart. Number one, your understanding is opened. See it on the overhead? That's what happens. Your understanding is opened. When God opens the heart of someone, there's a sudden understanding. Paul puts it this way. You were called out of darkness, and you were called into His marvelous light. You were blind. You were ignorant of the way of God. The Bible even says you are at enmity with God. And God takes you from a place of spiritual darkness and calls you into His marvelous light. And all of a sudden, the darkness is gone, and the ignorance is expelled, and there's understanding. And you see Christ in all of His glory. He's the same God who spoke light into darkness. He's the same God who causes the light of the gospel to shine in your heart. The Bible says Satan hath blinded the eyes of those lest the glory of the gospel of God awaken you. Shines into your heart. Folks, when God turns on the light, there's understanding. That's one part of God opening the heart. You get understanding. Number two, your desires are awakened. 
Jesus said it like this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, and when a man finds it, he covers it up. Then in his joy, he goes back and sells all that he has so that he can purchase that field. Mm, something happened to this man when he found this treasure. Right? When God gave him understanding of what the kingdom really is, and that's the personification of who Christ is, when you find out who he is, boy, your desires begin to change. The things you used to treasure, you don't treasure anymore. The things of this world are growing strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. There's joy. There's a sense of delighting in Jesus. And desires and priorities begin to change. How do you look so far? Has God opened your heart? If He has, those two things will be true in your life. Number three, your refuge is in Christ. When God opens the heart, your refuge is in Him. You realize there's no safety outside of Christ. Do y'all know how this felt when you got saved? Have you been saved? Or have you? Do you know what it was like not to have refuge and then for God to turn on the light of understanding? For you to have new desires and all of a sudden you know there's nowhere else to run except to Christ. You're going to see this in the Philippian jailer. I mean, Paul and Silas are singing some hymns. It may have been David, Psalm 118. More than likely, it was part of that, but they're singing in prison. And all of a sudden, the seeds of the gospel began to erupt in this man's heart. God gives him understanding. And when the lights turn on, here's what he says. What must I do to be saved? He needed, he sensed a need for the refuge. And the refuge is Jesus Christ. So when God opens the heart, you come to understand that Jesus Christ is the only city of refuge that is available. He's the only rock that you can hide behind. He's your safety and He's your refuge. Number four, your heart becomes tender. In Acts 2.37, it reveals that their heart was pierced through by the Word. So that hardened heart becomes tenderized. That obstinate, rebellious heart that wants to go its own way is tenderized. That which was, was fought against God in all of its uh, ability now is tenderized and Jesus becomes altogether lovely to us. Well, Jeremiah explained it this way. God takes out the heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh. Your heart becomes tender to Christ. Number five, your heart experiences conviction. What is the heart? It's the seat of the emotions. It is what makes you who you are. It's not that pumping thing inside of you. Yeah, it's called a heart, but we're not talking about an organ here. We're talking about you. That makes up you. That's why it's always not the best thing to say to a kid, ask Jesus into your heart. They have no understanding of what that means other than the heart inside of them. You need to, you need to make absolutely sure they're understanding, they're, giving their, they're putting their trust in their life into Christ for salvation. They must understand the facts of the gospel and have the emotive sense of being drawn by the Spirit of God in order to be saved. We're not trying to just rustle our kids straight through there to get them baptized, thinking everything's going to be okay. That's not okay. And then they're going to get to be 20 years of age, and they're going to be like, whew, I was told to get baptized, but I don't know why I was told to get baptized. Folks, that don't cut it. Let's let God work. The parent can't change the heart, but God can. You can't open the heart, parent, but God can, right? We make them available to the gospel. We pour it into them. We, we have a God-centered focus in life, but only Jesus Christ can open the heart. Don't worry about your kids praying a prayer. Worry about them trusting Christ. That's what they need to do, trust Christ. So the heart experiences conviction. 
The Holy Spirit will convict us. Now, folks, that degree of conviction can vary from person to person. Some people labor under severe conviction for years and years and years. I remember Natalie, Mr. Jerry Willingham. Uh, he was, when I led him to the Lord in his home, he was 74 years old and had dealt with that conviction his whole life. And then, at 74, trusted Christ. Others, like Paul and the jailer, man, when that conviction hits, it's in a flash. And you're gloriously saved by grace. You fall before the Lord. You get knocked off your horse like Paul did. And you get off the ground and you say, Woo! Who are you? Right? That's what Paul did. Lord, you know, who am I and who are you? But, and Jesus begins to tell him. But there's immediate conviction of sin. So, thus far, what does it mean to have a heart opened? Understanding is open. Desires are awakened. Your refuge is Christ. Your heart becomes tender. Your heart experiences conviction. Number six, your confidence rests in the promises of God. Once you're saved, your new motto is, My God is true, and all His promises are true. You think how, you know how serious and how important it is for us to believe the promises of God? You know, folks, you serve a God you cannot see. Unless you're Benny Hinn, right? I shouldn't have said that. Well, I say it again, except for Benny Hinn, right? I mean, this guy believed, one of these guys, Copeland or Hagen, says every morning when he shaves, the Lord Jesus is standing there with his arm around him as he shaves. I can tell you now, if he did that, he wouldn't be shaving. Unless the Bible is false, he would not be shaving. He would be on his face before a sovereign God. And God says, no man has seen God and lived. The only Son of God has revealed Him to us. But I want to remind you of something. You've been saved by a living Christ whom you've never seen. Yet, when He opens your heart, He is immediately trustworthy. Folks, that's the work of the Spirit of God in your heart. How is it that all those promises to you seem vague and something that's far-fetched? And all of a sudden, the Lord of eternity opens the heart and He gives you understanding. And all of a sudden, all those promises that God has given you They come flooding into your heart. And you say, my God is reliable. And He's trustworthy. No matter what's going on around me. You immediately trust God. You trust the one who has called you. You're not worthy to believe. Right? But our God is certainly worthy to be believed. Amen? No question. When God opens the heart, there's confidence in Christ. Number seven, your heart is then drawn to Christ. Jesus said, no, man, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And there's this awesome drawing of the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ becomes, yes, irresistible. He becomes irresistible. At this moment, when all these seven things, have, six things have taken place up to this point, and you are drawn to Christ, that drawing is absolutely irresistible. Your heart is drawn to Christ. And finally, your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it look like when when a heart is open? Well, there's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When God opens the heart, there's an embrace of Jesus. We've all been called to Christ in various unique ways. I'm, I'm so excited about preaching that to you when I get back from Guatemala. Not this coming Sunday. Next Sunday, but the Sunday after that, we're going to talk about how the slave girl came and how the Philippian jailer came. If you look at all three of these, there's a reason for this. There's a reason Luke is putting this there for you. Because we're not all, even though the same ingredients are in all of our salvations, 
We, we come to Christ in various different ways. Okay? That's, that's incredible to think about. Some of you were called in a very dramatic way. And your conversion may be akin to the Apostle Paul's. It was like, bang! In a flash, conviction, and you turn to Christ. Others of you may experience more of a calm uh, opening of the heart and reception of the gospel, much like Lydia. Right? It's highly possible. You were brought dramatically into the kingdom of God for some of you. For others, it was quiet. And you listened to the word of God and you believed. No fireworks. Sometimes God works in the quietness of our hearts. And others, it's so mysterious that you can't even remember when it took place. All of you know uh, the fact that when you're young, it's hard to put all those things together. And you look back on your life and you're like, Lord, I can't. Other people around me have these dramatic testimonies. And I don't sense that dramatic testimony. Well, I want to remind you that's not the most important thing right now. The question you ask is not, do I remember the day or the hour I came to Christ? The question is, right now, is your hope built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? That's the issue. Today, is that your hope? Uh, Again, you grow up in a Christian home. The mysterious workings of the Holy Spirit of God and regeneration. Maybe you haven't narrowed that down to that one day when you remember that. Right? The fact of the matter is, the question is, do you believe today? Are you putting your confidence fully in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you? Now my question is, has this sermon brought you one step closer to heaven or to hell? Which one? Don't be heart-hardened to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you been called in the way that's been described to you today in those eight things? In 2 Peter 1.10, here's a lesson for saved people. Peter says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Hmm. When's the last time you reflected on your own salvation? Peter thought it was very important for us to make our calling and election sure. What does that mean? It means to examine yourself. Do you have those eight things in your life? Are they working in your heart? Understanding. Christ as your refuge. Uh, Are these things working? Conviction. And you say, preacher, how do you know? Do I need to go over them one more time? I will. Here's how you know. Is your understanding open? Do you have new desires? Is there a sense of no refuge outside of Jesus Christ? Is there a tenderness to the heart and a conviction of sin? Is there confidence in the promises of God? And have you sensed being drawn to Christ? And have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? That's what it means to have your heart opened. Amen? Well, you know, I thought about it today, all week, preaching on a subject like Lydia. You know, you can be an old calloused church member. You've been under conviction your whole life. And you've been coming to this church. But you've never sensed those eight things I've talked about. But today you do. Today you sense the Lord of glory drawing your heart. You know what? No one's too old to be saved. Is that right? Some of you middle-aged people, man, you're trusting in all the wrong things. You really, you're building bigger barns. Throwing more money into them thinking everything's going to be okay. Let me ask you something. Who's your refuge? Who are you hiding in? Who are you clinging to? Where's your trust? 
Good questions, isn't it not? Lord, we need you. Lord, your word tells us in Jonah 2.9 that salvation's of the Lord. God, would you save a soul today? Lord, only you can open the heart. And God, I pray that the person uh, with understanding, with conviction, with faith in you, being drawn to you, clinging to the promises of God, Lord, would take place in this hour. God, be pleased to save souls. Lord, we see it in the book of Acts. The, the gospel is preached. Some reject. But those that are called by you and brought to you with the opening of the heart, they believe. God, do that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.